want to read further in John's Gospel, the 14th chapter, picking up in verse 18. Jesus says, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you a little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, for his incarnation, your eternal Son becoming flesh. We thank you for his life of perfect obedience as the new Adam, the new Israel. We thank you for his death on the cross, laying down his life and shedding his blood to forgive us, to accomplish for us the new exodus. We thank you that he descended into hell, and on the third day he rose victoriously and triumphantly from the grave. He manifested himself to his disciples for 40 days, and then ascended into heaven, and on the 50th day poured out the Holy Spirit. Oh, Father, this is our whole salvation. This is the meaning and purpose of history found in these very events. Oh, Father, we believe, but help our unbelief. We trust in Christ Jesus, but we long to know him better and more deeply. Father, would you show him to us today that in knowing him we might know you through the Spirit as well. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 24.3 asks the question, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? That question, who may ascend, is in one sense what the whole Bible is about. The whole Bible is given to us to answer that question. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? That question presupposes that we're in one place and God is in another. We're on earth, God is in heaven, and the question is, how can we cross from where we are to where God is? We know we were made for union and communion with God. We were made to have face-to-face fellowship with God. And we know we will never be fulfilled or happy with anything less than that. We were made to seek the face of God. As Psalm 24 says. So who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can have face-to-face friendship and fellowship with God? That question, really, who may ascend the hill of the Lord, is really set up by the very structure of creation itself. Genesis 1 reveals to us the architecture of the cosmos. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So there are these two realms, heaven and earth. And nothing is said there at the very beginning of Genesis 1 about any boundary between them. Uh, At this point, uh, we're told in Genesis 1 that the world, the earth, was without form and was empty, and darkness covered the earth. And of course, we can look at Genesis 1 and see how over the six days of creation, God addresses each 
one of those, the fact that the earth is without form, it's empty, it's dark. Over the six days of creation, God forms and fills and glorifies his creation. He gives it structure or form. He fills it with living creatures and he shines light into the darkness. But it's very interesting if you look at Genesis chapter 1, on day 2 of the creation week, something very interesting happens. God separates the waters below from the waters above. The earth is covered with water at this point, and it's as if God reaches down to earth, scoops up some of that water, and takes it up to heaven with him, and spreads it out, as if to create a kind of barrier between heaven and earth. We talk about firewalls sometimes, perhaps this is a water wall. The psalmist says in one place that God stretched out the heavens like a curtain or like a veil. It's as if there's this veil of water now separating heaven and earth on day two of the creation. And we get the sense that this is what has happened on day two of the creation week. Because any time in the Bible someone has a vision of heaven or, 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 or gets a peek into heaven, they always see Water, like Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 1. He's looking up into heaven and it's as if he's looking through a sea of crystal. Or John in Revelation 4 and 5, he sees water. He sees the 24 elders in heaven casting down their crowns upon the glassy sea, as we sing in the hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. And so now the question really is not just who can move from heaven to earth, but who can pass through this watery veil? Who can tear through the veil of water that separates heaven and earth? But there is a hint, I think right there in Genesis 1, that it will happen. It's, again, very interesting. You read Genesis 1, you see these patterns that are there. Uh, after every other day when God makes something, on the other uh, days of the week when God creates something, he sees what he has made and he declares it good. But that declaration is missing on day two. God does not say this barrier between heaven and earth is good. Perhaps we can compare it to Adam's singleness where God says it is not good for Adam to be alone. And so his singleness turns out to be only a very temporary condition. God then makes for Adam a wife. Because God does not call the barrier between heaven and earth good, it must be God's design for that barrier to only be temporary. In other words, God's intention, from the very beginning we see this, God's intention is to reunite heaven and earth into one. He will marry heaven and earth just as he intends to marry himself to humanity. God intends to join heaven and earth together as one just as he intends to join himself to humanity. And so what God does throughout the old creation to teach this, what God does throughout the old covenant, is provide hints and clues as to how he will break through the veil between heaven and earth. How he will create that face-to-face -face relationship between himself and humanity. And so God does this by building earthly copies of heaven. Models of heaven on earth. And when men are allowed to enter into these models of heaven, these sanctuaries, when men enter into these earthly copies of heaven, it gives us some clue as to how we will ultimately enter heaven itself. Of course, this starts with Adam and Eve. The Garden of Eden is the first model of heaven on earth. 
where God meets with Adam and Eve and he feeds them at the tree of life. That's God's intention. That's God's design for Adam and Eve. And we know that the Garden of Eden was on a mountain. We know that partially because Ezekiel 28 tells us that, that the Garden of God was on a mountain. But also because Genesis 2 tells us that rivers flowed down out of the garden. So the Garden of Eden is the first Holy of Holies. It is a mirror of the heavenly sanctuary. Of course, we know what happens. Adam and Eve sin. They turn against God. They rebel. They violate His command. They transgress His word. And when Adam and Eve sin, they lose their access to this copy of heaven. They won't be allowed to ascend the earthly mountain of the Lord anymore. They are exiled from the sanctuary. And so they have to go down and out. Down the mountain of Eden and out the gates. And God stations two cherubim with flaming swords to keep anyone from even thinking about ascending the mountain. There's no way to ascend with the cherubim stationed there. So who can ascend the mountain of the Lord after the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3? No one is allowed to ascend even the earthly copy of heaven, much less ascend to the reality itself. But God is gracious, and God continues to give models that indicate He will ultimately open a passageway between heaven and earth. We can't talk about all of these, but these models show again and again that God will tear through the veil that separates heaven and earth. One of those models of heaven comes in a dream in Genesis 28 where Jacob has a vision of a ladder that stretches from earth to heaven. It's a ladder that's set upon the earth, but its top reaches into the heavens. And Jacob sees angels, messengers, ascending and descending on this ladder. And Jacob names that place Bethel, meaning house of God. And he says, this is the very gate of heaven. This is a sign God will create a passageway between heaven and earth. Later on in history, God builds another model of heaven. It's actually a much more elaborate cosmic model. After God leads his people out of Egypt in the Exodus, he takes them to Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai serves as the mountain of the Lord, at least for a little while. And Moses is allowed to ascend that mountain. And on top of the mountain, Moses is able to get so close to God that when he comes back down the mountain, his face is shining. His face is glows with the very glory of God, with the radiance of God's glory. And indeed, the people cannot stand it. They can't stand to look at the glow of heaven on Moses' face. And so what does Moses do? He puts a veil over his face, just like that veil between heaven and earth. On top of the mountain, God gives to Moses a blueprint for another model of heaven on earth, the tabernacle. The tabernacle will be like a portable Mount Sinai, or even better, perhaps, another Garden of Eden. The plans for the construction of the tabernacle are given in a series of seven speeches to match the series of the days of the creation week to show that this tabernacle will be a new creation. It is a model of the mountain of God, a place for God to dwell in their midst, another Eden. And indeed, we see how it's like Eden. It's full of garden imagery. We see it's like Eden especially because it has 
veils, and on those veils are cherubim, just like the cherubim that God stationed at the gate of Eden after Adam's fall. But this is what's interesting. You read through this, the instructions to build the tabernacle, and then the execution of those instructions. And then when the tabernacle is finally completed in Exodus chapter 40, the glory of God fills the tabernacle. But in Exodus chapter 40, verse 35, we find that Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle because it was filled with the glory of the Lord. Not even Moses could enter. Who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? Apparently not even Moses now. But this is what's interesting. You keep reading, right? After the book of Exodus comes the book of Leviticus. And how does, if that's how Exodus ends, with Moses not being allowed to enter the tabernacle, the, the, the cosmic mountain, the holy mountain of God, how does Leviticus begin? Leviticus begins to show the way in which man will be able to ascend the mountain of the Lord. And the book of Leviticus begins with a series of animal offerings. And the first one in Leviticus chapter 1 is called the Ascension Offering. If you go read it in your English Bible, it's not going to be translated that way. But that's actually what it is. It's the going up offering, the Ascension Offering. And it's described in great detail in Leviticus chapter 1. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Perfect, clean animals. Offered on God's altar in God's house. So you remember those cherubim stationed outside of Eden with flaming swords, the way into God's presence, the way into God's house, the way up God's holy mountain will be through sword and flame. These sacrificial animals will be killed with the sword and converted into smoke through the flame on the altar. And that smoke mixed with incense will ascend to heaven. That's the ascension. Who may ascend? The animals. The sacrificial animals ascend. But that's not quite the whole picture. Leviticus goes on. If the tabernacle is a new garden of Eden, every Eden needs an Adam to tend it and to guard it. And so the priesthood is set up. And indeed, the same words are used to describe the duties of the priest in the tabernacle that were used to describe Adam tending and guarding the garden. Leviticus goes on to describe the ordination of Aaron and his sons to the office of priest. And so Aaron, as the high priest, will be able to enter the Holy of Holies one day a year on the Day of Atonement with a sacrifice and with blood. He will be able to go inside the veil and meet with God. But he won't be able to stay there. He can't dwell there. He's not going to be able to bask in the glory of God in God's house, on the top of God's symbolic mountain. He has to come right back out. But the Day of Atonement does this for us. The Day of Atonement shows the way. The way back into God's house will be through blood and through sacrifice. A way will be opened up into God's sanctuary. A way for us to ascend God's holy mountain will be opened up if a sacrifice can be provided that will really take away sin. If sin can really be covered by a sacrifice, then we will be able to ascend the hill of the Lord and stay there. Because then, as Psalm 24 says, our hands will be clean and our hearts will be pure. And we'll be able to enter God's heaven. 
I mean, a lot of these other models, a lot of other models uh, of this in the Old Testament, we can't talk about any more this morning. But I do want to point out something to you before we come to the solution to all of this. Not everyone was satisfied with what God was doing with these models. There were some who wanted to enter heaven, and they wanted to enter into heaven now. They wanted to ascend God's holy mountain, and they wanted to do it now. And so you have these false attempts at ascension. False attempts to ascend the mountain of the Lord. Probably the best known of these is the Tower of Babel. In Genesis 11, the people were commanded by God to spread out, to fill the earth. But instead, they bunched together in the land of Shinar. And they all had the same religious confession and they all spoke the same language. And they said, let us build a tower to the heavens. They joined together in idolatry. See, who may ascend? We will, said the people at Babel. We will ascend. We will storm the gates of heaven and take over. We will storm God's throne room. We'll build our own ladder to the heavens. We'll build a stairway to heaven in our own wisdom and in our own strength. And then nothing will be withheld from us. See, it's really a satanic aspiration. In Isaiah 14, a satanic figure says, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars. I will sit on the mountain. That's what they're saying at Babel. We will ascend to God's heaven, to God's throne room. But you know how the story goes in Genesis 11. They think they're building this great big tower to the heavens. It's still so puny. God has to come down and get a good look at what they're doing. It's as if the, the story's making fun of them. And when God comes down, He judges them and He confuses their speech and He scatters them. There's another false attempt to ascend as soon as the tabernacle is set up. This is again in the book of Leviticus. You know, again, in Scripture, again and again, we see that whenever a new Eden is created, there's another fall, just like Adam's fall in the garden. Every time you have a new Eden set up, you have a new Adam in that garden of Eden, and he falls in some way. And that's what you have in Leviticus 10. You have the sacrifices described in the first seven chapters of Leviticus. Then you've got Aaron's ordination, Aaron and his sons ordained to the priesthood, then the first corporate worship being offered at the tabernacle. And so now the garden is complete. Everything's good to go. And what happens in Leviticus 10? Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, get drunk, apparently. And they break into God's house. And they offer strange fire before the Lord. They go into a place. They don't have authorization to go. They go into the house of the Lord. They ascend the house of the Lord and they offer strange fire sacrifices that were not permitted or, or commanded by God. Who will ascend? Who will enter the Holy of Holies? Nadab and Abihu say, we will. We will ascend into God's presence and we'll do so on our own terms. But of course, God deals with them. They offer strange fire to the Lord. Well, it's fire for fire. God's own fire comes out and consumes them. They were offering strange sacrifices. They themselves are consumed as sacrifices. And then actually what happens on that very day, that's when God gives the instructions for the Day of Atonement to show the right way to come before Him at this point in history, the right way to ascend and enter the most holy place. See, the tabernacle or the temple revealed God's intention, His desire to have face-to-face -face fellowship with His people. But the best that the temple system could do is provide face-to-veil fellowship. 
The temple really kept God's people at a distance. It was ascension by proxy. The worshiper did not ascend himself. Rather, the animal sacrifices did as his representative. There were these veils telling God's people to keep out. You're not allowed here. You're not authorized to get this close to God. You can draw near to God, but not that near. The whole temple system kept God's people at a distance. Yes, there was a kind of inclusion there, but it's primarily a covenant and a system of exclusion. It reminds Israel continually they are still exiled from the mountain of the Lord. And so what will God do? How will God fulfill His plan? The place of the temple must give way to the person of the temple. The sacrifice of animals has to give way to the sacrifice of the Son. In order for man to ascend, God has to descend and then reascend, taking us with Him. We can't go up the mountain of the Lord, so God has to come down and rescue us. He has to enter into our plight and rescue us from it and then ascend and take us with Him. And really, this is what John's Gospel is all about. John Calvin summarized it this way. He says, Christ descended to us for this reason to carry us up to the Father. That's really John's Gospel in a nutshell. It's interesting, John in the prologue to his Gospel in chapter 1 verse 14 tells us that the Word became flesh and literally what he says is tabernacled among us. He's telling us right there from the beginning of his Gospel, Jesus is the dwelling place of God. He is the true tabernacle. He's the tabernacle in person. He's the temple cult in person. He's a walking embodiment of the book of Leviticus. What it was all about is embodied in Him. But then we see He's not only God's house, He's also the way to God's house. John 151 is interesting in this respect. It gives us another angle on this. Jesus is engaging there with Nathaniel, calling Nathaniel to be his disciple. And he says to Nathaniel, Hereafter you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Jesus says, I am the ladder. I am the stairway that connects heaven and earth. I am Jacob's ladder. That vision Jacob saw was a vision of me connecting heaven and earth, creating a passageway to move back and forth between heaven and earth. In John chapter 3, he says to Nicodemus, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who descended from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. As if Jesus is saying, I am heaven on earth. Jesus takes heaven with him wherever he goes. Wherever he goes, that's heaven and earth being bridged. That's heaven and earth being brought together. He has come from heaven and brought heaven with him. And when he returns to heaven, he's going to take earth with him into heaven. But I think we especially see this in the upper room discourse that begins really in John chapter 13. Jesus gathers with his disciples in the upper room on the eve of his crucifixion. Uh, He goes into the upper room with his disciples, or perhaps we should say he ascends into the upper room with his disciples. Why is it an upper room? Because this is another one of those models of heaven. This is like a mountaintop. All those mountaintops in the old covenant, the old creation where the people of God met with God. 
Those copies of heaven and earth. The upper room is another one of these mountaintops, a place where God will meet with them. And what does Jesus do? In John 13, he washes their feet, preparing them to enter God's house. That's what you do before you enter a house, right? You wipe your feet on the mat. That's what Jesus is doing. He's washing their feet so they can walk in to God's house. John 13 opens this way. Jesus knew he was about to depart from the world to the Father. Jesus knows his travel itinerary. He knows where he has come from. He knows where he is. And he knows where he is going. He has come down from the Father to earth. He's about to go up from the earth to the Father. He has journeyed to us. Now he will journey back. But Jesus makes it clear. He's not going to do this just for himself. At the end of John 13, Peter asks a question. He says, where are you going? And Jesus tells his disciples, he says, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. This is one of those verses that just drives the commentators and the preachers of John's gospel crazy. Because what is Jesus talking about? It could be so many different things. When he says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. What does he mean? Clearly, I think he's talking about the cross. They're not going to go to the cross with him now, but they will take up their crosses and follow him afterwards. But it's layered. He's also talking about his ascension. He's going to ascend. He's going to go into heaven ahead of them, but they're going to follow him in. And what John is doing for us with this language is he is showing us cross and ascension go together. The beginning of Jesus' ascension happens at the cross when he is lifted up from the earth and suspended between heaven and earth on the cross. And then it continues, it's completed in his ascension when he goes all the way in, all the way up into heaven on our behalf. And he does all of this to take us where he is. See, who may ascend? Jesus, the Son of Man will ascend. He is the King of glory. Psalm 24 is talking about He's the one who enters the gates. And when He ascends to the true heavenly holy of holies, what is He going to do there? He's going to present His blood on our behalf because He enters into heaven as the crucified one. He goes to act on our behalf as our priest. And He goes to intercede for us at the Father's right hand. And thus, when the crucified Christ ascends, He opens up a new and living way for us to ascend as well. So we can enter the gates and the doors that lead to the summit, to God's holy mountain, to heaven itself. And so moving into John 14, Jesus says, when He enters His Father's house, He says, I go to prepare a place for you. He says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. But the disciples don't get it. And so Thomas, I think really as a spokesman for all of them, says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And then Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, what does Jesus mean when he talks about coming to the Father? He means coming into God's house, coming into the Holy of Holies, ascending the holy mountain. And this is Jesus' whole purpose. This is his mission to lead us to the Father, that we might dwell in the Father's home and in the Father's heart, even as Jesus himself does. Jesus has come from the Father's home so he could return there with us in tow. 
And so we will dwell in the Father through the Son. And the Father will dwell in us through the Son. And we will be one with God. And heaven and earth will be merged. See, the only thing better than having God tabernacling among us is God making us into His tabernacle. And that is what is happening. That is what God has done in Jesus. What could be better than God tabernacling among us? God making us into His tabernacle and dwelling in us. And Jesus is saying that is what He has come to do. And so what does the ascension of Jesus mean for humanity? The ascension is not just Jesus defying gravity. It's Jesus fulfilling God's plan for humanity. His ascension is our ascension. His ascension is the exaltation and fulfillment of our humanity. A humanity He shares with us. A humanity He takes into heaven with Him. His ascension opens the door to heaven for us. It locks heaven and earth together. It opens the passageway between heaven and earth. See, at the cross, the veil was torn. We know that from Mark's Gospel. At the cross, the veil was torn. In the ascension, He passed through that opening in the veil, and now we can as well. And of course, just as the sun ascends through the torn veil from earth to heaven, so then the Holy Spirit can descend from heaven to earth through that same passageway, that same way that has been opened. The prophet Isaiah cried out to God, rend the heavens and come down. It's not just tear a hole in the sky so we can go up into the heavens, but tear a hole in the heavens and come down. And be with us. And that is what the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is all about. See, the cross is followed by the resurrection on the third day. Followed by the ascension on the 40th day. Followed by Pentecost on the 50th day. When the Holy Spirit is poured out. And the Holy Spirit falls on us like water from above. Baptizing the church. Showing that the heavenly firmament, that boundary between heaven and earth, is no more. The Holy Spirit does not come merely as Christ's surrogate, as if we get the Holy Spirit instead of the Son. It's not as if we exchange the second person of the Trinity for the third person of the Trinity. No, Jesus makes it clear in His upper room discourse. The Holy Spirit comes, and when the Holy Spirit comes, He brings the Son to us. And of course, the Son brings the Father to us. And so heaven comes to earth even as earth is brought to heaven. In this upper room discourse, when Jesus talks about sending the Spirit, He says, I will come to you. I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. How will He come to us? In the form of the Holy Spirit. And so just as the Father and Son mutually indwell one another, so we dwell in the Father and Son, and they dwell in us as well. See, the question the disciples were really struggling with is how can the ascension be good news? How can Jesus going away from us be good news? What's good about Jesus leaving us, about Jesus leaving earth? Well, it's this. It's because when Jesus goes away, the Spirit comes and the Spirit brings the Son and the Father with Him. And so now God is not just with us. God is in us. Jesus descended not just to bring God down to earth, 
but in order to lift us up to heaven. He goes away so He can give us more of Himself, not less. And He does this through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He goes into heaven to open heaven for us. And so now, in the Holy Spirit, Jesus the Son is our access to the Father. Jesus is the way, and the Father is the destination. Jesus is the true ladder between heaven and earth. He is the true tower reaching into the heavens. And so He brings heaven and earth together and makes them one, even as He makes us one with God. So God has His home in us, and we have our home in God. And that face-to-face fellowship is now a reality. And I think what we see in that passage we read from Hebrews 10 is the unfolding of what this means. Hebrews 10 says, We now draw near boldly entering the Holy of Holies, the place where even the priests, even the high priests of the Old Covenant feared to go. In its earthly copy, we boldly go into the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus through the new and living way He has opened up for us the veil which is His flesh which was torn on the cross. See, Jesus is gone where no man had gone before. But now He takes us with Him. See, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? That's a historical question. It's it's really a historical quest. The whole meaning of history is bound up in that question. Jesus has ascended. He has ascended the mountain of the Lord and He has taken us into heaven with Him. That's the apex of history. This is the fulfillment of God's whole plan for the human race and for the creation. But that question, who may ascend? It's also a liturgical question. Who can draw near to God? Who can come before God in prayer and in worship and receive God's gifts? And we answer that question every Sunday in the words of the Sursum Corda when we lift our hearts up to the Lord. And when we use the words of the earliest Christian liturgies we have and we say that we worship God with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, those cherubim no longer keeping us out Rather, the angels welcoming us in to join in their worship of God. And all of this is because Christ, our high priest, our forerunner, has gone ahead of us into heaven on our behalf and made a way for us. He has made us priests and He has qualified us to enter. Who may ascend in Jesus? You and I. Do. We ascend the mountain of the Lord. We enter the heavenlies. Indeed, we live in the heavenlies. Even on earth, because heaven and earth have been brought together in Christ Jesus. So Ephesians 2, Paul says, He has made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're seated in the heavenlies with Christ right now. Colossians 3, he says, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Philippians 3, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. In Revelation 15, the saints cross over the heavenly sea in a new exodus and enter into heaven. In Adam, it was down and out, but in Christ, it's up and in. In John 17, Jesus prays to the Father for His disciples, sanctify them by your truth. And that prayer is answered to be sanctified means we belong to God. We've been transferred from earth to heaven. We are now God's holy ones with access to His holy presence. We're now authorized personnel. And we can ascend the holy hill of the Lord. We can enter into the most holy place. God's heaven is now our home, even as our humanity has become God's home. And so what does the ascension mean? 
It means we have union and communion with God right now. I'm not denying that there's a greater communion, a greater face-to-face relationship with God to come at the last day, a greater face-to-face knowing of God that will be ours at the last day. But even now, God is ours and we are God's. We are one with Him through Christ Jesus. Heaven and earth have been brought together in Him. God and humanity have been brought together in Him. Heaven and earth have been married. God and the human race have been married to one another. We have fellowship with the Father in the Son through the Spirit even now. Who will ascend the hill of the Lord? The question of the gate liturgy is now answered. By the grace of God in Christ, we ascend. And we ascend a better mountain than the mountain of Eden or Sinai or the temple. We ascend to heaven to the home of God, which is now our home. We see the unveiled face of God in Jesus Christ. We know God's love and God's forgiveness and God's acceptance even now. We know we have a place at His table to enjoy the heavenly banquet. We know we're members of the family, sons and daughters of God Himself. We are inside the circle of love that is God's triune life. We are now God's vice regents, fulfilling the original human vocation of ruling over the earth in wisdom. And we experience the power of God, enabling us to put to death all that is fallen and fleshly and earthy, so we can live in the Spirit lives of love and joy and sacrifice, the life of heaven on earth. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You that Your Son descended and took on our humanity to lift us up to You so we can dwell in Your presence forever, beholding Your face with unveiled glory, reflecting that glory to one another. We thank You for the new and living way He has opened up for us through His cross and His ascension and the outpouring of His Holy Spirit so we can ascend Your holy hill. We thank You. You have poured out Your Holy Spirit upon us through Your Son. And the Spirit takes what is Christ and gives it to us and manifests Christ to us so that in knowing Christ through the Spirit, we can know You, our Father above. We thank You, O Father, that through Christ and the work of the Spirit, we can enter into the gates of the new Jerusalem that in Him our hands are clean and our hearts are pure. And we know that we will behold You in all your glory, forever and ever, as your ascended and reigning people. This is your good news. This is our salvation. We give you thanks and praise in Christ's name. Amen.